tarati la ta 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 tarati ta 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 tarati I think tonight I will do another program about the trials and tribulations of being a present-day Marco Polo. Um, now I, I wonder whether or not Marco Polo had any of the problems <laughs> that, that ordinary people today have when they travel halfway across the globe. You know, as a matter of fact, some of the places that I was in were places where Marco Polo was, you know, uh, in my recent trip all the way across to the Antipodes. And I had, I had a question uh, that that hit me. I was I was in the I was in this this uh, oh it was hot you know I was walking around I was in Bangkok and I wondered whether or not Marco Polo now why I thought of Marco Polo I'll tell you why I was walking past uh, I was going down a street that was mostly shops you know mostly uh, things like. Uh, uh, antique shops and junk shops of one kind or another. They have they have their equivalent. Every city you go to in the world has its equivalent of the Times Square tourist traps. You know where they sell the thirty nine cent Japanese cameras, and they sell the Whoopi party records, and uh, they sell all those wild postcards, especially the party records. You ought to see some of the. Can you imagine dirty party records in Bangkok? Well, they got them. And uh, I'm, I'm walking along. I'm, walk, <laughs> I'm walking along this junk street, you see. And there is a statue in the window, and it looked, uh, you know, a very cheap-looking statue with a lampshade on the top of its head. You know, that kind of thing. That that pop art junk that people buy. There's 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 one furniture store which I will not name, right on Times Square, which is an incredible example of that kind of decor. You know the kind of decor, the 17-foot ceramic cat, and the, <laughs> and the the mother of pearl inlaid bar filled with bottles of Ballantine or something. <laughs> You've seen that kind of that kind of artistic taste. Well, that taste is universal. You'll find that people everywhere in the world buy that kind of uh, that kind of dross. It's it's a uh, it's peculiar subliminal uh, sub uh, not subliminal. Excuse me. It's a sub a kind of subprimal artistic taste and so I'm walking along a street in Bangkok where all this junk is on display and there is in the window a statue of Marco Polo made into a lamp and uh, you know that's cheesy <laughs> that's kind of an interesting idea <laughs> and I wonder if, what Marco Polo would have thought had he had he known that uh, hundreds of years later he'd show up in a in a junk shop in Bangkok with a lampshade on his head with a with a piece of wire coming out of well a piece of wire coming out that you plug in you know not for crying out loud what a way to end up but so there's there's Marco at least he made it you got to admit he's famous so there's uh, they don't make lamp uh, believe me uh, everybody doesn't make the lampshade uh, set I don't know many people who are made into lamps later on but here was Marco Polo and he had a scroll in his hand. And uh, I knew it was Marco Polo. I'd seen the... Uh, in fact, uh, this lamp was made from a, a woodcut I had once seen. You see this woodcut of Marco Polo. He's got a scroll, and he's got, uh, he's got a globe in his hand or something. And so here's Marco Polo, and I'm walking down the street. It's hot, it's crummy, and I'm sweating, and uh, my feet are sweating, and my head is sweating, and my ears are ringing, and the sun is beating down on the top of my head, and uh, everybody's talking... Uh, the Bangkok language all around me, and I'm looking around. There's the signs are all in that that strange language, and 
and uh, it's like it's like a it literally is another world you know uh, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day we're talking about the Orient really going into the Orient most people have never gone to the Orient really they'll go to Tokyo uh, which in many ways is a it's been rebuilt completely since the war obviously and for obvious reasons and it's been kind of rebuilt into a, a far eastern version of uh, Coney Island uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of the Catskills and there's a lot of other stuff going in, in Tokyo that just is not true Orient. But you land really in the Orient and you know that you don't have to go to the moon to see another way of life, to see another world, you know, uh, to feel another world. It's just like a there's a gas in the air there. It's just a different scene. You know it. And you just know that there's never uh, there's an ultimate place wherein resides the Oriental heart. Uh, that has no relationship to the ultimate place wherein lies the Western heart. You know, one thing that most people like to believe, uh, especially if they're really dedicated liberal types, is that everybody underneath it all is the same. They want all the same things. You know, they, they want peace and they want prosperity and that. Well, I question that. <laughs> I question a lot of these old ideas, which I myself had and held very strongly to my breast for years before I really did any extensive world traveling. And now I wonder, I question whether people are all the same or whether we have bred mankind. Now, I'm just throwing this out. I'm not trying to make any inflammatory remarks or anything here. Whether we have bred, just like other species of animals have bred, several distinct strains, which are really distinct from one another, but which can interbreed, uh, all right, you know, they can produce uh, interbred folds or whatever it is you want to produce, uh, and yet they are different types. Uh, the Percheron is different from uh, an Arabian horse, and yet they can interbreed, you know, oh yes. Uh, and they can live together and they can do all the things, but they're very different horses. <laughs> and I wonder whether or not we have pre created various strains uh, through environment, biology, genetical selection, one thing and another, all kinds of various cultural things, until finally we may have eight or nine different kinds of human beings walking around in the world. Not just superficial things like color. I'm not talking about the superficialities of color and, and the obvious bone structural differences and that. But I'm talking about something very much deeper than that. And so I'm walking along the street there, and it's the, the temperature is booming down on me, and I hear these people talking and everything, and I'm part of the scene, and I'm sweating. And I wondered whether or not Marco Polo had the same feelings of there is, and this always happens to travelers, especially if they're lone travelers a kind of sick sensation of truly profound loneliness. Truly profound loneliness. Like loneliness for your own kind. You know, we, we have a tendency to laugh a lot when people, you say, oh, the Americans, they'll go to some place and they'll all hang together. Well, you have to go to these places before you understand why. You really do. Uh, there is a, is a, a very deep, profound sense of, of aloneness. Now, I wonder whether Marco Polo felt that. He must have, you know. You don't, you don't get much of this uh, from the kind of writings that the people of the period did, Marco Polo's travels. Uh, but I wonder whether or not at any point he just sat there and looked out over that alien country, looked out over those alien peoples, and looked at the alien buildings, and, and he felt the alien sun beating down on his head, and he could smell the alien jungle, 
and he felt, oh man, holy smokes. Uh, just once, let me take one good look at, at Genoa or Venice once again, you know. <laughs> and it's a strange uh, sensation of loneliness. You know, when you read travel books, travel books are always one-ninetieth of the story. They're always insouciant. Or they may be deep and penetrating about the people where uh, they, wherein they are written and, and about the people that uh, are under scrutiny. And yet they rarely talk much about the way the man felt, the guy that's writing it. How did a guy feel after nine months at the headwaters of the Orinoco? He couldn't constantly be interested in the birds, you know. He couldn't constantly be sitting there with his eyes wide open with fascination at the natives and their dugout canoes. He couldn't constantly be looking at the water and saying, Oh, man, I'm looking at the Orinoco, you know. No, there had to be moments, maybe at 3 o'clock in the morning, when uh, he felt a lot of other things. And they never write about these. They never say that. Uh, they, never, they never discuss the inner feelings of the traveler. Now, I, I'm not being chauvinistic. I'm sure that a, that a native of Thailand walking along 3rd Avenue at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, must feel that sensation of, oh, what, where will it ever end? You know, he looks around and he says, what is it all about? What, what is this? <laughs> that, that feeling of being alone, of, of really being a, uh, separated and cut off from the herd. You know, we're a herd animal. We don't like to believe this, but we are a herd animal. And, uh, and any good animal psychologist will tell you the attachment that animals will develop not only for their own kind but for their specific herd their specific herd they 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 uh, they really will uh, cows will develop an involvement with the herd that they're part of not only just other cows but their herd their place and we're a herd animal and you begin to develop this fantastic taste for the herd your herd and uh, it's not to be put down you can't just say well it's chauvinism uh, that just shows that you're narrow. No, we are this animal, and we cannot stop being this animal. And no, no matter how hard you you work at knee bends, and the intellectual push-up exercises, uh, verbal isometrics, no matter how hard you work at it, no matter how much of a hippie you think you are, you wind up knowing deep down inside of you that there's something else again. And it's something you can't fight against. It's something that is really part and parcel of you definitely part of you and uh, so I'm walking along this street and I'm feeling this this deep and profound sense of of uh, estrangement from the people around me so then you know what develops and I wonder whether or not this developed in Marco Polo a fantastic taste and almost uh, an almost mania for the printed word uh, for <laughs> in other words books magazines anything that are English uh, you, you develop this, and, and, and you read stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily read at home. You, you, you'll grab a hold of a copy of a magazine that you wouldn't think twice about back home, and you'll read it avidly. You'll lie there on your sack, and, and you can hear the, the sound of the alien feet walking outside on the cobblestones, and there you are reading uh, uh, the stamp collector's journal, something frantically, just reading it because it's English. Yeah, just because it is English. And, uh, and, and particularly, you're, 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 you begin to develop this, this terrible thirst or taste for American writing, something that's American. 
And uh, I had a I had a weird experience uh, in in Bangkok. You you start to look for things. You you go into every uh, drugstore or bookstore, and you look for something English. And I went into this bookstore. I, I had to have something. Uh, and by the way, I had exhausted my reading material very early in the trip. Uh, whenever I go on a trip, uh, I carry books along, especially if I'm going to some place that I know is foreign, like uh, Africa, to Nigeria, or someplace uh, where I know. Uh, you can't walk up to the newsstand and say, "Give me a copy of the New York Times." You know that, uh, yeah. There's a there's an overseas edition of the New York Times which uh, you get, and there's a there's a sense of of uh, being cheated when you read a copy of the New York Times. You feel that the people back home are experiencing all this stuff. Uh, you read the ball scores of games that were played four or five days ago. And uh, you, you you read you read it almost microscopically. Uh, you read you read the, the want ads. Uh, you read little advertisements for cars and things in, in overseas editions of newspapers. Why? Well, you want to reproduce this world that you came from, this thing, as much as you can. And so I'm wondering about Marco Polo. I'm wondering whether whether Marco Polo's walking around, you know, at two o'clock in the morning in uh, in Siam, and whether he's saying, "Oh boy, just." If you can only get a hold of a copy of the uh, of the Machiavellian Times or <laughs> whatever it is that he came out of, you know the the, the uh, Renaissance Gazette. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Machiavelli, this is W O R A M and F M New York. You have one little one of those little whoopies done. Hit the button there, please. Here's Frankie Lane. It's the time you try to swing a new toothpaste that gets teeth irresistibly white, McLean's has a taste that's so lively, so dazzling, you can actually feel it white. Your whole mouth feels refreshed and invigorated. Come on now, try new McLean's. You'll dig it. It's McLean's the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that is a wild. Yeah! What a taste, what a zing. When you smile, all the bells will ring. Get a white did you know what that was all about? <laughs> it sounded like he was selling bull whips. Crying out loud. Tell you. By the way, do you know, uh, this is not to be repeated, but do you know that uh, I just received word from one of my spies that one of the outstanding peace fighters of today and one of these guys you know who's uh, at the forefront of every demonstration for love and peace carries around with him a gigantic black bull whip which tells you what he's really about <laughs> and I won't tell you who it is but you'd be astounded if I if you knew and uh, I wonder how much of our demonstration is purely for the sake of demonstration uh, they say that this guy, uh, when he's through with his demonstrating, he comes back home to his pad or his hotel room and he takes out his bull whip and starts going, pow! Pow! And guess who it is? I'll bet you don't know, do you, Lee? Well, you do know, huh? Just thought you ought to know. If it ever got out, I wonder what it would do to his uh, reputation as a peace fighter and a fighter for love. Uh, speaking of... Uh, 
Peace Fighters. Let's see, we got the kids scene here. If your son or daughter has graduated from high school and plans to attend college this fall, we have a note here. Barrington Hills is a newly established seminar in college preparation. And it's located in Barrington, New Hampshire, which, by the way, is a beautiful town. Barrington Hills has been created for the purpose of making available to college-bound young men and women information and guidance important to them in order to adjust to the brand-new experience of away-from-home life at school. Between mid-June and mid-September, Barrington Hills offers six two-week sessions. Concentration will be on four main themes, self-discipline, that's that's the bullwhip department, I suppose, skills, social problems, and recreation. Staffed by a highly competent group of skilled educators, Barrington Hills helps to provide a vital, healthy transition from school at home to school away from home living through small discussion groups, personal counseling, lectures, and other activities, and so on. If you want to find out about it, send your name and address to Barrington Hills, W-O-R, New York 18. That's Barrington Hills, W-O-R, New York 18. Let's get, let's get the other one out of the way. You notice how I, I'm reading these commercials very straight. See, I've developed such a fantastic taste for the human life. Oh, you like that, huh? I see. I love that straight stuff. Uh, I've developed a tremendous taste just to read the printed word, you know, that I can make heads or tails of. Is your car old enough to smoke? Surprising how many cars are. Is your car old enough to smoke? Surprising how many cars are. If your car's gobbling up oil, put it on a reducing diet. Just a can of Prestone Oil Miser added to your regular oil saves money. Prestone Oil Miser is just what the name says. It's a miser for saving oil, restores lost power, quiets noisy engines, stops oil burning in any car. Get Prestone Oil Miser in the can with a handy tear-off top. Insist on Prestone Oil Miser. It helps save oil, save money, save your car. If your car's old enough to smoke, surprising how many cars are. If your car's old enough to smoke, get Prestone Oil Miser. That's wiser by far. Prestone Oil Miser is a product of Union Carbide. What language will scientists use to contact life on other planets? How can a math theory help prevent World War III? You'll find the hows and whys of these and thousands of other fascinating questions from the world of mathematics in a wonderful life science library book. In its 200 pages filled with illustrations, many in color, you'll see such marvels as the geometry in a daisy, the calculus in a startled cat. You'll meet Greeks who conquered space with a compass, Americans who are using math to reach the moon. You'll gain an insight of today's new math. Enjoy mathematics for 10 days as a guest of Time Life Books. Then return it without obligation or keep it for only $3.95 plus postage. And every two months receive for free 10-day trial another volume from the Life Science Library, an important series on the thrilling world of science. To examine mathematics free for 10 days, send a postcard tonight with your name and address to Math Book, Box 628, New York 17, New York. Remember, to examine mathematics free for 10 days, send a postcard tonight to Math Book, Box 628, New York 17, New York. Now, uh, getting back to this uh, this thing in Bangkok, uh, 
and uh, people are always writing to me, and they're always saying um, they they've heard that I've done a lot of traveling, and uh, they're always saying things like uh, give us some advice. Now, the kind of advice that most people want, unfortunately, is the most obvious type of uh, tourist claptrap. They want to know what hotel to stay at, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, they want to know uh, how much do you tip. Don't worry, that'll take care of itself. Uh, they want to know such things as what kind of clothes should I take. Well, the only advice that I can give them is usually the kind of advice they don't want to hear. As little as possible. I have found almost uh, invariably most people travel with about 19 times too much. Uh, they load themselves down with junk of all kinds, especially women. Uh, women have a tendency to try to take their entire closet with them uh, because they feel that they need it. You know, they, they feel that this closet is with them all the time uh, for 365 days of the year, and they don't know how they can get by without it. Well, you'd be surprised how you can get by without that closet. And uh, the only thing I can say to anybody who is going to travel, especially to hot climates, take as little as you can. Uh, take a few shirts that can be washed out real quick, not by yourself. You know, most guys think in terms of, of the drip-dry shirt. I think this is ridiculous. I have never, I have never been satisfied with a drip-dry shirt wherever I've gone. First of all, I find them hotter. And I find in many climates they don't dry. They just drip. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so it doesn't work. So what I suggest is to take a bunch of sleeveless shirts, which can work at the top with a tie. You know, you can use them for both ways. Take one very light sport coat, which uh, folds up. And uh, for the, uh, the transition clothing, wear what you have. In other words, have what you wear. Uh, wear uh, and take one set, one pair of very light black slacks. Now, why black slacks? They don't get dirty. And uh, when they're light enough, and uh, if, they're, if they're good enough, you can wear them both for dress and for just walking around, you know, with a sports shirt. Uh, too many guys will, will load up their, their bag full of chinos, and they'll put all kinds of blue jeans and all junk like that, and find they never wear it. Uh, this stuff, first, first of all, you feel very foolish when you suddenly find yourself looking insanely like a tourist. Walking around, you'd be surprised. You know, what looks very hip in the village suddenly looks like Touristville in spades when you get to Karachi. Uh, so you walk along up and down Greenwich Avenue or you go to, you go to 8th Street in, in the village and you wear your, your chinos and your blue jeans and all that stuff and you figure, you know, you're, you're part of the scene there. Well, you walk along the street in Karachi with your blue jeans and that, you look 50 times more gauche than the lady with her flowered pink dress. Seriously, you really do, and you feel you feel absolutely like a like a nut. You know, you feel real foolish, <laughs> and so so I, these are these are the kind of and I, I don't want to get on this this type of advice. Do you want to hear any more of this kind of stuff? Uh, don't take any food with you, because that's obvious. Uh, don't take as much camera junk as you think you're going to need. Uh, this is another thing. They they sell film. They've heard of film in other places in the world, friends. And uh, you'd be surprised. It's the same kind of film that you buy on 52nd Street. It's the same kind of film you'll buy down on 34th Street. And yet many people will go trotting over to Europe with 70 or, or to uh, Karachi or to, uh, to uh, a place like uh, New Zealand with 17 pounds of stuff that they could buy cheaper there. That's the sad fact of it, that in many places film is cheaper. And is often better because it's fresher and it hasn't been carried all around the world with the, with the temperature going. Now, uh, 
What are some of the other things about traveling? Well, I'll tell you this. Take one pair of shoes. Now, most people, you know, shoes are very, very heavy, and they will take they will take a, a four or five pairs of shoes. And 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 if you're a man, uh, there is a kind of shoe which can fit both in the uh, casual category and can be worn for dress. Take a black pair of shoes. And boy, be sure that you take comfortable shoes. Let me tell you, nothing can kill you quicker than 17,000 miles over the streets of Sydney. I'll tell you, you will develop blisters in places that you didn't even know existed. And uh, so be very careful about that. But, but above all, Try to take as little as you can. Now, now take take the uh, the thing about shirts. You'd be surprised how easy it is to buy a shirt in foreign countries. Uh, most guys will take some uh, sweaters. They will take sweaters with them. Whereas in most foreign countries, sweaters are better and cheaper than you can buy here in the states. In other words, uh, if you if you uh, say, "Gee, what I ought to take is one at least one good cashmere sweater." Forget it. In almost every place you go, cashmere sweaters will be about half what you'll pay for them right here. And uh, in other words, plan to buy a lot of the stuff that you think you may need to wear. Underwear, for example. A, li- a large number of people will take all kinds of underwear with them. They'll load up their sacks full of underwear and socks. Oh, man. Uh, underwear is very cheap to buy. And uh, it is. And you'll be surprised. They wear the same kind that you wear here. <laughs> you know, it's got the elastic around the top, and it's got all the regular stuff. You know, it works very good. Now, now getting on to other things that I, I would like to say that you should do, that it takes years, years and years. I have made probably ten trips to Europe. Uh, and I've made three or four trips to the Middle East and the Far East. So I speak with some authority here. And, and, I, and I would like to recommend of two or three things to take that nobody ever tells you to take. For crying out loud, take something to read. Nobody ever tells you about the fantastic periods of boredom that you have when you travel in foreign countries. Now, what do you mean boredom? Everyone says, gee, that must mean that you must have an empty soul. Shepard, how can you get bored if you're in Karachi? You'll find out. <laughs> I'll tell you, you will find out. Uh, boredom sets in very quick in an alien atmosphere. Now, the more alien the atmosphere, the quicker it sets in. Strangely enough, you go to an atmosphere that is much like your home, like, say, London. London is quite a bit like America in many ways. Boredom will not set in so quickly because you walk down the street, you could just read the signs. You, you look in a shop window, you can read the, read the ads. Uh, you can pick up a newspaper, a local newspaper. Uh, you can talk to people. It is very difficult to talk to people at any great length in truly a foreign country. Uh, just the most casual of conversations, the most trivial of conversations can be held, generally. Uh, when you start to ask people about how they live, well, are you happy? Uh, what do you think of the Vietnam War? you find out very quickly that you're running into a gigantic blank. You pull a real blank. Uh, because most of them don't think anything of it. That's what throws you, you know. You, you, you sit there and you talk to them, and you find that, that it's almost impossible to get what seems to be so easy to get at uh, when you're back here in the States. You, you ask people about Vietnam, for example, in Bangkok, and they look at you and say, Oh, uh, so very bad, very bad. 
Well, you know, they say that uh, the, the, the counterman at the Horn and Hard Art on 6th Avenue says that. And it's so it's, it's very difficult to, to hold the kind of conversations that you think you will hold. Uh, and then on top of it, when you find that the people who will talk to you, uh, who really are outgoing and who want to really discuss things with you at great length, are usually the local hippies who've got a thing on America. Yeah. And so the only thing they want to talk about is, uh, you'd be surprised at how many of them want to talk about, of all people, Elvis Presley. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so you, you, you come all the way to, uh, you come all the way to Bangkok for Elvis Presley talk. Uh, and uh, John Wayne talk, and yet this is the kind of stuff that you find they will want to discuss with you. Now, now uh, these are, these are all these are all uh, things you don't read much about in guidebooks. Now, one of the other things that I would like to recommend—I've done this so many times that uh, I, I suppose it's getting to be a dull routine. But one of the greatest things uh, I would never go—I would never go outside of the country without it. Uh, one of the things that I find most valuable is a radio. Boy, believe me, if you're planning to go overseas anywhere, please take a transistor radio and a couple of spare batteries with it. Uh, that doesn't take much uh, much uh, luggage space. It's light. Get yourself a little tough, rugged transistor radio. Don't get one of the big fancy ones, you know, with all the big uh, glass slide rule dials and 15 antennas that stick out because they're heavy and you won't be able to hear any more, actually. Uh, you will, you'll be surprised at how, how much companionship and how informative a radio is when you're traveling in foreign countries, particularly if you're going to some place uh, where the, you have a language barrier. Boy, one of the great moments of my trip uh, was, was lying in the sack in, in, in a hotel room in the Far East, lying there with the, with the heat banging down outside and the, the sound of uh, an occasional traffic uh, truck going by at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. That's about all you hear. The sound of, uh, of uh, hotel personnel moving around. It's, it's, there's a silence, boy. Let me tell you, there's a silence that settles down in some foreign countries that you wouldn't believe. And, of course, this is when boredom begins to slowly creep in. You don't have anything to read. Uh, and I'm lying there in my sack, hot, and you can't sleep. You know, that's another thing. When you travel, they, they never mention that either. The difficulty of sleeping when you are on really extensive foreign traveling because of the difference in time. Uh, when you have traveled 5,000 miles and you're used to going to sleep at a certain time, you spend a couple of days and your body gets adjusted, then all of a sudden you're in another place where the time differential is like five or six hours. And so here it is, five o'clock in the morning, and you're still wide awake. You're wide awake, you're walking around, your eyeballs are, are, are bright and chipper, and everyone has been asleep and is about to get up, and you are just beginning to get slightly tired. Just slightly. Well, then you, you say, well, I'm going to stay up. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm going to stay up. And so the dawn comes up, and by about 10 o'clock in the morning, which is the equivalent of maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning to you now, you are groggy. You're walking around, and the sun is beating down on you. You're trying to make the scene. It's now 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and you've been without sleep for 22 hours. Right, Terrence, when you're traveling in the Far East and your time gets all loused up? And you forget about it, you know? Then all of a sudden you come down with a fantastic case of constipation. Uh, because you haven't been sleeping. 
uh, and, and you're walking around, you know, and you're beginning to get sick to your stomach, and now it's 10 o'clock, and you, you, you decide, oh, I've got to go to bed. I've, got, I've just got to go to bed, see. I've just got to go to bed. And this is the time things are beginning to happen around you. Uh, people are running around, the nightlife is starting, and the lights are flashing, and the people are yelling and cheering, and you are groggy, you're out on your feet, you've eaten 17 straight meals, that's another thing. You've mixed. Yeah, you, you, when, you, when your time gets loused up, one of the first things you start doing is eating too much. I don't know why this is. Yeah, you start eating a lot, and you get feeling real fat. And uh, so then you, you go back to your hotel room, and you say, well, I'm going to sleep. The heck with it. And you lie there, and now you're overtired. And you're also, remember, excited because you're in a foreign country. There's a, there's, a, there's a psychological reaction that sets in. So you lay down. You lie down flat on the bed. The fan is going. The temperature is still hot. It's 128 degrees in this place. The humidity is 400%, you know. And you're lying there. You've got this terrible case of, of, of constipation. And, you're, and you're, your eyes are sweaty. And your, your, your soul is dry now. And you're lying there. And you're trying to sleep. Now you're wide awake again. Oh, boy, are you awake. You know? Oh, man, you're wide awake. And so you get up, and you walk around the hotel room, and you go and you say, I'll take a shower. I'll take a hot shower. That's what I'll do. And you turn the faucets, and all the faucets do is go, and three drops of mud come out. This you're always running into in foreign places, right? Especially in the Far East. So it's like that. So, well, holy smokes, what will I do now? So then you, you pick up the phone, and the phone does not work. And you're in this jazzy hotel that does not work. So you pick the phone up, and there's a dead silence. And you hang the phone back up, and you say, I'll go down now to the desk, and I'll find out what's the matter with the water. And so you go down to the desk, and here they are. They're very pleasant and cheerful. They're, everybody is so helpful. You know, they're, they're, they're so great about everything. Uh, oh, yeah, they're very polite and cheerful. And you come down, and you say, uh, no hot water. Room 416, 416, no hot water. And you point. You're smelly. You see, you point to me. Me, smelly. Me need the shower. I got the sweat all over. Me sweat. Oh, so, oh, so, no, no water between our, of, of, uh, 9.15 and, uh, 2 a.m. No water. No, what do you mean no water? I'm sweating. I need, I've got to, oh, so, no water. Oh, shut off in main central fuse blow. No water. See, well, you know you're not going to get anywhere. He's very polite, you know, and, and very nice, except that you know that this is it. So you get back into that little self-service elevator, the sweat dripping off you, and you're smelly. And you go back up to your room and you say, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, uh, I'll have a drink. That's what I'll do. That'll make me sleepy. I'll have a drinky. And so you, you, uh, <laughs> you take out the little bottle that you've got. And a little little scotch or something. You pour yourself a little, a little nog on a scotch, and you sit there and you start sipping it. And you start sipping it, and you start sweating now, of course, right away. And instead of making you, instead of making you tired and sleepy, it has made you fifty times sicker. Oh, oh, oh boy, your stomach really feels upset now. Now it feels rotten, and you feel any minute now it's going to come out all over the bathroom floor. You know, the whole scene. So instead, you go. I'll, I'll lie down. So you lie down, and now, now you are you are bathed in a cold sweat. Now, see, none of this ever comes out in in, in, in travel books, and and this is a common experience. This is not just a shepherd experience. This is an experience that happens practically to everybody because your system gets all lost up. The time and the hours and everything else and the food. 
the unfamiliar food and the, oh, the unfamiliar water, the whole bit. So you lie there for a while in the cold sweat, and then you begin to have false confidence. You start feeling pretty good. Huh. Huh. Feel pretty good, you know? She was, I guess I'm getting my second wind. And then you get a telephone call from your traveling companion. Usually you, you've made contact with some guy or somebody, you know, and they call up and they have been going through the same scene. They say, hey, you know, I feel pretty good. What do you say we go out and just sort of look around, huh? He said, okay, all right, I'll meet you down, I'll meet you down the lobby in about five minutes. Yeah, all right, I'll change my socks, that's all. So you get up and you take your sweaty shirt off and you rummage through and you get, you get a clean shirt. By now you're feeling pretty good, you know, and you've been able to squeeze out of the sink about a half a cup of tepid, lukewarm, rusty water. And you have put your washcloth in this, you know, and you've dived yourself all over with it. By the way, that's another thing. Take a bar of soap with you, will you please, friend? Now, we're used to hotels providing soap here in America. Very few hotels provide soap overseas. Even the nicest hotels in Italy or the nicest hotels in Rome or in London or in uh, places like Germany, soap is just not provided. So take yourself a bar of soap. Please do another thing. Take a washcloth. This is very valuable. Uh, they do not provide washcloths. They provide 14,000 towels, no washcloths. So take a little soap and take a washcloth. So I've, I've learned this over the years. See, so I've got my bar of soap there, and I take that water, you know, that little cup of water. I've been able to squeeze out of this, this rusty faucet now. And I'm dabbing myself with it. I'm trying to give myself a little sponge bath now. And I put the sponge bath all over me. And I take myself some, some aftershave lotion and douse it over you, you know, to make yourself feel a little better. And, and pretty soon you're feeling pretty good, you know. That's the, that's the sad thing about it. You're feeling pretty good now. You've got your clean shirt on and your pants are pressed and you've shined your shoes and you're downstairs in the lobby now and you go out and they've turned the town off. <laughs> you go out <laughs> Nothing. The town has been switched off. Uh, most foreign capitals, I think, operate from a ma from a master switch somewhere, and there's a guy in charge of turning the town off. And now the town is out of business. That's it. There's usually one little terrible sin district that's still going wild, but you don't want to make that scene. You know, that's uh, that's uh, like everywhere. You don't want to make that. You know, it's, uh, you know what I mean. It's a strip joints and a few little places like that going. But outside of that, everything's dead now, quiet. Absolute silence has settled down. And you think, you know, it should be a little cooler. Well, actually, it seems to get hotter now. And maybe it's just in your mind, but it seems a little hotter out at night. And so you walk around, and you and you're with your buddy, you know. And by now, you're beginning to feel vaguely disappointed, which you don't want to do, you know. You don't want to do. You have looked forward to coming to Bangkok. You have looked forward to coming to Karachi. You have looked forward to coming to the Far East all of your life. And now here you are, and you're feeling a little disappointed. And uh, something is going deep down in your stomach now. And you, you feel like you've got some fantastic swamp down there that's about to explode. And you're walking around, <laughs> and you're sweating again. And your only clean shirt now you've wasted. Because it's now damp, it's wet, and the moss is beginning to grow up the back of it. And uh, there's little little animals that are hanging on the sides, you know, down around the sleeves and all that stuff that, that hit in the night. And you've wasted it. You have gone no place and this is only your, your second to your last shirt, and uh, you're going to be dead in a couple of minutes with the shirt scene. And so here you are in your clean shirt. Oh, boy. Uh, well, now you try to pretend. That's the first thing that happens. You try to say, gee whiz, you know, Charlie, 
Has ever occurred to you that, boy, east is east and west is west, and there the twain shall meet? Oh, boy, isn't it exciting being in the Far East? Well, you go about two or three blocks, and one or the other of you says, you know, I think I'm going to go back to the back to the hotel. I think I'd just go back, you know. Well, you know he's not going to sleep. Both of you are wide awake. And so what do you do? You wind up sitting in the lobby. In the lobby. Now, the lobby looks like any other lobby of any hotel in the world. You know, there are a couple of desk clerks back there doing whatever mysterious things desk clerks do. You know, those little secrets they exchange about the guests. They're talking around back there. And once in a while, uh, somebody goes through carrying a bag. And you sit there. You just sit. And then you say, uh, I think I'll go back to the bar. Well, I hear you go back to the bar. And here's the bar. The bartender's half asleep. There's nobody else in there. You and your friend come up to this bamboo bar. And the, the bartender sort of looks at you sleepily. as oh, boy, where are those? a couple of soaks. Holy smokes. And all you want is something to do. So you say, uh, how about a Coke? Got a Coke? By now you figure that's about the only thing that's safe. You know, with the way your stomach is working, your mind is working. So how about a Coke? Oh, so Coke. Oh, so, so, yeah, so. And he takes the bottle of Coke. And it's, by the way, lukewarm. He's turned off the ice and everything else, and so it's lukewarm. And he pours it into this lukewarm glass. And you sit there with your friend, both of you drinking a lukewarm Coke, something you would never have done back in New York, and enjoying it fantastically. And so what do you start talking about? New York. <laughs> you start talking about New York. You start talking about places in New York and people you both know in New York, you know. And, and, uh, and finally, my friend, friend, he's getting a little bug, see, and he says, to the, he says to the man behind the counter, the bartender, he says, uh, so you got any peanuts or anything? Oh, soy soy And he takes this little tray of, of peanuts and he puts them out in front of us. And they're Far Eastern peanuts, by the way. Uh, very different from the peanuts that we're used to. These are little hard, round nodules. Uh, you, you have a feeling that some prehistoric bird laid them. Uh, they're not, they're not quite like what you're expecting. And you start chewing on these things and they stick in your teeth and <laughs> you find that they, they find, you find that they stain your tongue a, a bright purple. And so you're drinking the Coke. And all the while, the fans are going back and forth above you. And you begin to know that terrible, gnawing grayness of profound boredom. And that's the moment when you wish you had something to read. That's the moment when you wish you had some kind of anything. Who cares, you know? Yeah, you're trying... Oh, well, I tried that. I turned on my transistor radio, and I did not get the Mets. I did not get the Mets. You know what I got? I'm going to tell you what I got. And it was the greatest sound in the world. Absolutely. I am listening in the middle of the night in the Far East to Armed Forces Radio. And who am I listening to? Red Barber. He is describing the first half of a doubleheader between the Yankees and the Baltimore Orioles. Oh, oh you know, I couldn't have cared less. But somehow, it had a golden meaning that night. And those peanuts bobbed away in the swamp, and I just lay there in the heat. 